Eso. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. 2,500, 3,500 years ago, Israel cried to the prophet Samuel for a king. Give us a king like all the other nations. They said, no, we don't want to submit to God and God alone. We're kind of tired of that. We want to have be all like all the other nations, so give us a king. So God spoke with Samuel concerning this dilemma, and he said, You know what, Samuel? They're not, uh, their problem is not with you, it's with me. So go ahead and give them a king. That's what they want. Give them what they want. And he said, Tell the people what's going to happen when they get their king. It ain't going to be pretty. He's going to take a whole lot more than God takes from you, but go ahead and give them what they want. Sounds like Burger King got to give the people what they want. In any event, that's exactly what happened, and it caused nothing but turmoil. The very first king of Israel rebelled against God, and God took his Holy Spirit from him. Then came one who was totally unsuspected to become king, a fellow by the name of David, the youngest of his father's sons, and he was anointed king, and the first thing that happened was he had to run for his life for six years from King Saul. So after that, he was anointed king over the united Israel, and God looked upon that man's heart and said, he's a man after my own heart, and therefore I'm going to send my own son, who is going to sit on his throne forever, and he will become king of kings and lord of lords. But on May 6th, another king is going to be crowned. In fact, it will probably be the most magisterial crowning before the coming of Christ and the crowning of Christ as king of kings and lord of lords. His name is Charles III. Well, I'm Charles III too, but they're not going to crown me king and king or king of kings or king of anything. On May 6th, King Charles III will be crowned in Westminster Abbey in an ancient ceremony echoing biblical ideas of kingship and containing rituals that have been used since the first English king more than a thousand years ago. But, Charles is going to undergo the ceremony in an England unlike any other. Just like in America, our first president, George Washington, became president in a, in a country unlike anything compared to what we see today. The same is true for formerly Prince Charles, now King Charles, is going to be coronated. That means crowned as king of the empire. Britain in 1953 was still much more homogeneous with far stronger links to Christianity and in particular the established Church of England. So it's all very, very different now in the 21st century. On March 21st, uh, 2021, the day of Britain's decentennial uh, census, one in six residents, that is about 10 million people, reported that they had been born outside the United Kingdom. And India was the most common country of birth of immigrants. 
The ethnic diversity there in the U.K. is matched by changes in the country's religious makeup. Just 46% say they were Christian on Census Day in 2021, a drop of 11 percentage points in just 10 years. Meanwhile, other faiths, including Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and Sikhism, grew by 100,000 adherents in the same decade. And by the way, things have not improved since. The Christian influence in the U.K. has diminished rapidly. But the most significant difference is the growth of those who said they have no religion. An increase of 8.5 million, bringing those with no faith, no claim to faith, to 22 million or a third of the entire British population. Yet the coronation remains fundamentally a Church of England rite. The monarch, the supreme governor of the Church of England, is crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, the same church's leading primate. The mutual endorsement has prevailed since 1534, when Henry VIII broke England away from the Roman Catholic Church and set up his own church. So we're going to get a considerable amount of history here today as we take a look at what is happening right before our eyes, this first crowning of a king in 70 years, the likes of which has never been seen since the crowning of Queen Elizabeth in Europe. So in 1534, Henry VIII broke England away from the Roman Catholic Church and set up his own church. And a few years earlier, the Pope had settled on Henry the title of defender of the faith because of his alleged loyalty to Rome. Yet despite the split, all British monarchs since, including Charles, have used the title defender of the faith. Yet we found it interesting that a few years ago, Charles used the phrase defender of the faiths. Now, he tried to correct that, saying, well, no, what I I, I really mean is uh, I'm going to be defender of the faith because I'm head of the Church of England, but I'm going to be defender of all the other faiths, too. So that makes his crowning and his coronation very unique certainly contrary to that of his mother 70 years ago. So for that sizable third of the population that have no religion, the coronation is going to be kind of mystifying. They're going to not know what they what hit them because they have no relationship whatsoever to the Church of England or any other church. But there's another, no less remarkable change in the religious orientation of the man being crowned. Charles III, while confirming his own faith since his accession last September, King Charles has also made an effort to embrace Britons of other faiths and even none. During his televised address to the nation the night before his mother's, or after his mother's death, at a reception at Buckingham Palace for leaders in several faiths, he said, I am committed Anglican, I'm a committed Anglican Christian whatever that means. And at my coronation, take an oath relating to the settlement of the Church of England. But he added that he had 
A duty as a sovereign to protect the diversity of our country, including by protecting the space for faith itself. So in this, the new king was following his mother's footsteps, known for her own Christian faith, as well as her public role as supreme governor of the Church of England. Elizabeth had led the nation in prayer services of Thanksgiving and commemorations for the war dead right after World War I or after World War II, actually. People remark on Elizabeth's very personal reflections, though, about her own Christian beliefs in later broadcasts. In fact, her very first Christmas broadcast, after she came to the throne in 1952, was very personal. She said, I want to ask all of you to pray for me on that day, that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I will be making, that I may faithfully serve Him and you all the days of my life. But how about Charles III? We'll be back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. When Charles gave an address, the first Christmas Day broadcast as a monarch, he gave a tribute to his mother and her faith. But more importantly, there was no mention of his coronation and no request for prayers. Because the king, who has long been engaged in interfaith dialogue, would have been acutely aware that while asking for prayers, as his mother did, it could be interpreted as an inclusive act. It could also be seen as exclusive, especially to that third of the British who have no alleged faith at all. So, King Charles III is in a very difficult place. Well, he's in a very difficult place with regard to tradition. However, his own alleged place and the reality of his place is rather dramatically different than the ritual itself. He is a multiculturalist, a religious pluralist, and one who embraces political correctness. He is renowned for that. He is a renowned climate addict, so to speak. One of the leading climate forces in the world today. He is also one of the leaders, not for an ecumenical movement, which normally was deemed to be between those of the Christian faith. No, he is renowned for merging the faiths and adopting them all as co-equals. After all, aren't they all people of faith, says King Charles? So, When you understand the next addition to his coronation, it brings almost a blasphemous type of connection that we need to be aware of. And that is an innovation not seen before in the uh, coronation of a king or queen. That is, 
There's a cross that's going to be used in the coronation procession that has been embedded with supposedly relics of the true cross upon which Jesus Christ hung, given to Charles III by the Pope, Pope Francis. Now, I have a question about this. Do you? I'm wondering, where did Pope Francis come across the cross of Jesus? Just asking, and if he did, where is it located? How could he come up with some pieces of the cross? Does he have the cross? And if he has the cross, is he going to use that uh, in some papal ceremony in the near future to claim that he is truly the Christ of God, the vicar of Christ with his own cross? Just asking. This is a very interesting phenomenon. To claim to have remnants from the cross of Christ that he is now going to have embedded in this cross to be waved over the coronation of King Charles III, who is a multiculturalist, religious pluralist, and embraces political correction, and while claiming to be defender of the faith, that is the English church, is also renowned to be eclectic in bringing all faiths together. Just, by the way, as Pope Francis has been doing. This is fascinating, friends, and we need to understand the greater picture. It's not just all about pageantry. It's not just about a big coronation. Let's all have a big celebration. There's a lot that's implied and embedded in this coronation, and that's why we're talking about it here on Viewpoint today. Now, what's also interesting is that the coronation ritual is older than the Protestant Reformation when England broke with Rome. So in one sense, it's intrinsically Catholic. But still it's going to embrace this cross in the service in which a monarch will swear to uphold a Protestant sect founded by Henry VIII, who ordered countless medieval shrines, including their relics, their Catholic relics, destroyed. So what is it that's going to be uplifted, and what is it that's going to be destroyed here in this coronation? Is this a radical change in world history that is setting the stage for a final elevation of an alternative Christ figure who will rule and reign until the coming of the just one who will be coronated king of kings and lord of lords? Utterly fascinating, my friends. Well, this uh, coronation is a almost a thousand-year-old uh, ritual and celebration. Uh, it's going to be the 39th coronation ceremony in a British monarch at Westminster Abbey, and it's an ancient ritual that dates back, as I said, over uh, over 900 years, maybe a thousand, and the only remaining religious coronation ceremony in Europe. 
the only remaining religious-oriented coronations in Europe. Now, that's saying a lot. The first thing it's saying is Europe has become radically unchristian, non-Christian. So-called Christian Europe is no longer even remotely Christian Europe. That would not even resemble truth. In fact, one even wonders whether England, not so jolly old England, could be called Christian England. Even though John and Charles Wesley, famous for their hymns and their preaching and so on, and the founder of the Methodist Church came from England, even though the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, and Evangeline Booth came from England, it seems that England has left them. Or perhaps they also have followed in the trajectory of England itself and have become hyper-liberal and embraced the spirit of this age rather than the spirit of Christ. But this coronation, King Charles III's coronation, is a symbolic formality. As I said, it's going to take place on May 6th, following a nine-month mourning period for the late Queen Elizabeth. The coronation ceremony, an occasion for, as we might understand, a lot of pageantry and celebration, is also seen as a solemn religious ceremony. And it's remained that way for over a 1,000 years. And for the last 900 years, the ceremony has taken place at Westminster Abbey in London. The service is conducted by the Archbishop of Canterbury, whose task this has always been since the Norman Conquest in 1066 A.D. Now, this is history, friends. This is a very big deal. But about this Archbishop of Canterbury, who is he? Well, currently, his name is Welby. But Welby's been in the news. He's been in the news quite a bit lately. For what? Well, embracing the practice of homosexuality, embracing the uh, bringing in of homosexual leaders in the Church of England. Oh, yes. He's become renowned for that. And this is the same archbishop now that is supposed to be doing this solemn anointing with oil on the head of the new king of England, crowning him with immense jewels that we're going to hear about. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It almost, to me, sounds like blasphemy. How can a man, the Archbishop of Canterbury who claims to be the God-given leader of the Church of England, to which Charles III is dedicated and committed under oath to support. How can he pronounce with holy oil on the king when he himself that is, the Archbishop of Canterbury rejects the very words of the God in whose name he claims to do the anointing. God says, I hate divorce. 
and he calls the practice of homosexuality an abomination. Is this ritual then becoming an abomination in the mind and heart of God? Now, the new king's coronation is going to be somewhat of a streamlined event. You, would, you wouldn't think about it that way, but it is going to be, compared to the service of his mother had 70 years ago, a total of 2,000 guests have been invited, and they're all paid for by the United Kingdom government. The ceremony is going to be shorter, much less expensive, and incorporate different community groups and faiths. So, what King Charles is doing is seeking to conform to, shall we say, a more modern view of life, including formality, but also including many of the things that we've just talked about. The embracing of all faiths. The embracing of the spirit of political correctness. Sustainability, as they call it. Climate change. All of these factors that are characterized by the non-religious left around the world. As per tradition, though, King Charles will start by taking the coronation oath, where he undertakes to rule by law, exercise merciful justice, and maintain the Church of England. Then the Archbishop of Canterbury will anoint, bless, and consecrate the monarch, who is seated in King Edward's chair that was made in 1300 A.D., by the way, and has been used by every monarch since 1626. The archbishop will then hand over the orb and scepters, the scepter's orb, part of the crown jewels, to the new king. Now, this is all fascinating stuff, and you'll see it on television if you witness this on television. The sovereign's orb is a key piece of the English-British coronation regalia, It was created for the coronation of Charles II in 1661 by the raw goldsmith Robert Viner. The uh, sovereign's orb is made of enamel, gold, sapphires, rubies, emeralds, amethysts, diamonds, and pearls. And it's been used at all coronations and events since King Charles II's coronation in 1661. The sovereign's scepter is one of two scepters. Now, think about this word scepter, friends. You remember in the the, uh, story of Queen Esther, where she was afraid to go in to the room of Ahasuerus the king to plead on behalf of her people unless she was specifically invited by the king because it was well known that anyone who would purport to enter into the king's presence without his invitation if the king did not reach out his royal scepter, that person was consigned to death. Well, Queen Esther understood this. And so there was an element of fear there, sincere fear. So her uncle Mordecai said to her, who knows, Esther, but what you are called to the kingdom for such a time as this. So she goes into uh, King Ahasuerus, 
And in fact, he does reach out his scepter. Uh, He has great favor with uh, Queen Esther. He reaches out his scepter that gives her the opportunity to share the nefarious uh, plot that has been uh, corrupting uh, Persia uh, for the destruction of the Jewish people. That's one place that we have the royal scepter. Another place that we have the royal scepter is uh, with Christ himself. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Mm. Now, that means that by implication, Jesus was born out of Judea, and he would carry the royal scepter of Israel for eternity. Jesus, Yeshua, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. So the hordes in heaven will say, God bless the king. May he reign and live forever and ever. Sound familiar? There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived, Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Just a question for your thought. How can King Charles III be the defender of the faith when he disagrees with some of the profound and simple beliefs of the faith? Such as God hates divorce. He calls remarriage when your spouse is still living adultery, and God calls the practice of homosexuality an abomination. And Prince Charles, now known as King Charles, about to be coronated, disagrees with both of those principles, which are foundational to the very creation order of God, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. How can you maintain with a straight face that you're a defender of the faith when, in fact, you disagree with the faith? As a matter of fact, so disagreeable has Prince Charles, now King Charles, been with that faith that, in fact, there was a strong question as to whether or not he could even legitimately be called King of England because of the belief that was deeply rooted in the Church of England, formerly rooted deeply in the Catholic Church, and in all churches 
that divorce was hated by God and homosexuality was an abomination. So what's going on here? It shouldn't be difficult to figure it out. This coronation is intended to be a compromise with Christ himself. A compromise to elevate the power and demands of the culture, not only the culture in England, but the culture of the entire world. Including the papacy. This coronation is a coronation of cultural lordship over Christ himself. All in the name of Christ, of course. Does it sound like deception? They say the road to hell is paved at Compromise Corner. And the compromises that are being made here are so substantial. In fact, the only way that Charles III was given the opportunity to even be considered a candidate, even though otherwise he was the one who was eligible to take over the, the seat of Queen Elizabeth, his mother. But it was his mother's action about five years ago, I think it was, that gave him the approval to marry the woman that he currently married after he had fornicated and frolicked outside the marriage to Princess Diana, his own wife, and then he cohabited with his current wife, all to the shame of England. But the situation was so grave in terms of upsetting the, shall we say, the general traditional apple cart that Elizabeth III Elizabeth finally capitulated and gave him permission to marry his current wife. Then the Church of England itself, or the 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 uh, the Church of England and or the Parliament had to act in order to make this happen. In other words, the authority powers of the British monarchy and the governorship of a country that once ruled the world, where it said the sun never set on the British Empire, has now chosen in this moment in history to enter into a final authoritative compromise and lift its fist against the face of God himself. So the monarchy from here on out will have more authority than the scriptures. Just as the papacy claims to have more authority than the scriptures. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. So, let's talk a little bit about these uh, sovereign scepters. Uh, They represent good governance. 
It symbolizes the temporal power of the king or queen and contains the world's largest diamond, the first star of Africa diamond. And King Charles III will be literally weighed down in jewels to convey the glittering range of power held by the monarch of the British Commonwealth. After receiving both the orb and the scepters, the Archbishop of Canterbury will place the crown of St. Edward containing 444 gemstones on Charles's head. And then here comes another major twist in the procedure. In a major change to the proceedings, the British public is going to be invited to play an active part in the ceremony and swear allegiance to the king. Now, this is this is very interesting. They're not swearing allegiance, pledging allegiance to a flag, a symbol. They're pledging allegiance to a man. Are you listening? If you have any knowledge of the Bible whatsoever, this should catch you, catch your breath. Because this sounds very much like what is going to usher in the final beast empire. The pledging of allegiance to a man to rule the world. Now, I'm not suggesting that Charles III is that man. I'm saying this is the pattern that we would expect. The pledging of allegiance to a man who purports to be the head of the church. And that's exactly what the Pope claims, to be the head of the church. In fact, he purports to be the vicar of Christ, to sit or stand in the place of Christ on earth. So, do we pledge allegiance to the Pope as a man? Do we pledge allegiance to... Charles III, as a man who has already demonstrated his uh, willingness to compromise to the max with some of the most fundamental principles of the faith. And then the people are supposed to respond, God save the king, With all asked to respond, God save King Charles, long live King Charles, may the king live forever. I I thought there was only one king that was going to live forever. Jesus Christ the righteous, right? Now, several years ago I wrote a book called Seduction of the Saints. How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. Friends, this coronation, as glorious and magnificent as it is going to be, it's going to have all the interest factor for the media, uh, and, and I'm not putting that part down. It is. It's, it's just the way it is. But amid all of that, there's massive deception that underlies this coronation. It's a very troubling coronation. 
It's been troubling for the Church of England. It's been troubling for the leaders of the Church of England. Here's this headline. Listen to this. King Charles Church at Loggerheads over role of other face will play at the coronation. Behind the scenes, there has been war in the camp. But they're capitulating. Caving. Because it's all about earthly power. Privilege, perks, position, reputation. And these things are deemed to be superior to loyalty to Christ. It's just the way it is. This is what's gotten us in trouble in America, in our church, in the churches in America. The continued uh, capitulation to the culture and its demands. In an effort to try to win the culture, we have become the culture. And Christ has been left out in the cold. So, I urge you to get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. It's an $18 book, yours for $15, on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. You can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. By the way, for whatever it's worth, it's the second best-selling book that we have ever had out of all ten. The first was Renewing the Soul of America. The next is Seduction of the Saints. Why is that? Well, because, as one person said, it is so incredibly relevant and practical for my life, for my life's decisions, for helping to understand the dynamics of what are taking place in our world and then to conduct myself accordingly in line with God's word so I don't get snagged, snookered in by the deceiver. Seduction of the saints, how to stay pure in a world of deception, right there on our website, saveus.org. All right, we're going to move forward here. King Charles at loggerheads over the role of faith is going to play in his coronation. Uh, He wants to make the coronation ceremony as diverse as possible. Diversity. Hmm. Inclusivity and diversity. Wow. That's political correctness at its height, friends. That's the foundation of his headship. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. 
Welcome back to Viewpoint. Charles III intends to make his coronation ceremony as diverse as possible. Multiculturalism, religious pluralism, political correctness, weaving it all together in one massive, glorious, magisterial uh, coronation event, all in the name of Christ, while rejecting the authority of Christ at the heart. And it started a row between him and the church just four weeks away from the ceremony. The disagreement was about the role that different faiths could play in the constitutional event. The British monarch intends his coronation ceremony to fully reflect the modern monarchy, which is inclusive and has figures of Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, and other faiths. And it led to a deadlock with church officials who aren't in agreement with the king's demands. Hmm. Well, I wonder who will win. You know who will win. If the coronation takes place, which it will, Charles III will win. The compromise will have been made. It will be a coronation of many faiths in many languages, as ABC News now tells us. The first time, it will include the active participants of faiths other than the Church of England. Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, and Sikh leaders will take part in various aspects of the coronation. And all of this uh, leads back to a very famous king of England. At that time, England was not necessarily, was not seen to be a secular state. It was said to be a Catholic state. Now it is a profoundly secular nation, yet the coronation remains a very religious ceremony. So it's form, not substance. It's all about form, but not the substance behind it. And we had a situation going back uh, in many years ago to a very famous king, one of the most famous kings of England, other than King John at Runnymede. And that is Henry VIII. Henry VIII is best known for his six wives. And they each had a different fate. Divorce, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. <laughs> That's what happened to them. Henry's driving desire for a male heir was to lead him to divorce two wives and have two wives beheaded. And it led to religious revolution and the creation of the Church of England. And, in many respects, the reparation. The decisions that Henry made during his reign were to shape modern Britain. Modern Britain. So it could be argued that Henry actually founded the modern English nation. In 1536, it was important for a 16th century king to appear all-powerful. But it was very costly, and it, it involved all kinds of playing games with marrying uh, the daughters of other kings and other nations and so on. And we're not going to go into all those details. If you want to understand all those details, I urge you to watch two very famous movies. I don't watch many movies. The ones that I will watch are historical movies 
that have a meaning to them, a reason why I should watch them. One of them was called Anne of a Thousand Days, the story of Anne Boleyn, one of Henry's wives, whom he sent to the tower to be beheaded because she couldn't give him a son. The other was A Man for All Seasons, one of the best films, I think, of all time, except for Chariots of Fire. A Man for All Seasons. It was about Henry VIII and the whole uh, complex overlay of politics and religious battles over Henry VIII wanting to produce a male heir to continue his reign, should something happen to him, and to do whatever was necessary to accomplish that goal. When Henry VIII became king, he was a Catholic. He was under the Pope. But he sought the Pope's permission to divorce his wife, his first wife, because she had not given him a child. The Pope declined. Then he sought for a uh, a writ of annulment. Since she hadn't given him a child, he wanted to pretend that they had never consummated the marriage and therefore the, the marriage should be annulled. In other words, he was willing to do whatever it took to play games with the truth in order to try to get the spiritual or religious approval of his fleshly desires. None of his efforts worked. He used trusted friends, very close friends, to try to gain this opportunity to divorce and to remarry. It is a major, major issue in the history of Protestantism and the Catholic Church. Sir Thomas More came into the mix of it. He was very trusted by Henry VIII, He was a Catholic, and he was asked by Henry VIII to be the one to facilitate the Pope's approval. And he said he could not do that. And for that, Henry VIII sent him to the Tower of London for execution. That's how important, friends, this issue of divorce and remarriage was all the way back in the early 1500s. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal because now the Church of England and the monarchy has seen fit to overturn the belief system of the entire Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church 
and all Protestantism for the purpose of allowing a ritual to take place so as not to embarrass England and put Prince Charles, now King Charles III, in the official role as King of England. To me, this is a very, very big deal. You see what compromises had to be made. First of all, for good or ill, Henry VIII decided to start his own church, the Church of England. So he became the head of the Church of England, the defender of the faith, even though he was automatically not a defender of the faith because he disagreed with the fundamentals of Scripture regarding marriage and divorce. So how can you, my friend, you, my pastor friends, that are approving divorce and remarriage, serial adultery, when the spouses are still living, how can you claim with a straight face to be carrying on the faith once delivered to the saints? Just asking. Just asking. We no longer had to send anybody to the Star Chamber or the Tower of London. No, we just send them out of our churches. Oh, you don't agree with uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You don't agree with the practice of homosexuality or transgenderism and all the new uh, echoing uh, reverberating consequences of what took place there with King Henry VIII in the 1500s. You don't, you don't agree with those things? Well, okay. So you're going to kick people out of your church. You're going to say they're not welcome anymore, right? They're not, uh, they're not agents of peace. Because in order to have peace, you have to agree with the lordship of the culture rather than the lordship of Christ, right? That's what the Church of England has decided. That's what Queen Elizabeth decided, unfortunately, in her latter years. And that's what the majority of the churches in America have decided, even so-called fundamentalist, even so-called strong evangelical churches and their pastors, all to pander to the lordship of the culture. So if we can't beat him, we'll join him. We'll bring our own peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We'll get rid of those renegades who just continue to hold on to the truth of what God has said, and we'd rather have peace for a short time than to obey what God has said. So rather than being a defender of the faith, we're defenders of the culture. So what do you think, then, King Charles' long relationship with religion may look like under his new reign? What do you think it will look like? Well, it'll look like what it's been looking like during the last 15 years of his life. 
won't it? The leopard hasn't changed his spots. He hasn't repented. He hasn't confessed that anything he did was sinful. He hasn't confessed his adultery with Princess Diana and the others that he fraternized with outside of that marriage. He hasn't convinced, uh, confessed his adultery with his current uh, professed spouse, who is now going to be the consort of England, revered, bowed down to, an open adulteress. Here's what Jesus said about it, in case you don't quite understand. Jesus said, whoever divorces their spouse causes them to commit adultery. And whoever marries the one divorce commits adultery. So you might say, well, uh, didn't Princess Diana die? Yes, she did. But Prince Charles had already committed adultery over and over again during their marriage. But let's suppose then that uh, because of her death, now he was free to remarry. Oh, but he's only free to remarry in the Lord, and he's only free to remarry someone who is not divorced from their spouse. Oh, but his spouse, his current spouse, is divorced from her spouse, and he is still living. Therefore, Jesus said, Prince Charles is committing adultery. Openly and notoriously in front of not only his nation, but the world. And his children. And we're supposed to say, O king, live forever? Some of us are going to have to make some choices these days. Some very serious choices in our lives, in our churches, and so on. This just gives us an opportunity to take a look in the mirror. This is a big deal, but it's a much bigger deal, spiritually, than anyone wants to really admit. And I thank you for joining us here on Viewpoint today. Get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception, an $18 book, yours for $15, on our website, saveus.org. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA, and seriously consider becoming a partner, friends. Remember, God's trusting his people to support this ministry. Has he talked to you about that yet? You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.